This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Today we're talking about mineral rights and the challenges of inheriting land. Today, author Erica Bolstad is here to discuss her new book, Windfall. If you're listening on KXCV or the Bearcat public media app, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Real Fiction is a production of Real Fiction Media Group. On this program, I have discussions with authors, journalists, and changemakers. I look for stories and reportage that encourage us to look at hard issues with fresh eyes. Now, why is the program called Real Fiction? Because we all filter facts and stories differently. Our lived experiences are not the same. But all Real Fiction program guests have something in common. They are grappling with something complicated, an uncomfortable history with ethical gray areas that need creative solutions. All episodes of Real Fiction are available wherever you get your podcasts and on realfictionradio.com. I'll be back in a moment with author Erica Bolstad. In the highly anticipated book, Windfall, by Erica Bolstad, we get to read about what happens when a journalist covering climate change learns she would inherit potentially valuable mineral rights near an oil field in North Dakota. The author, Erica Bolstad, is a journalist and filmmaker in Portland, Oregon. Erica spent a decade in Washington, D.C., covering politics and environmental issues, and was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for work at the Idaho Statesman. She has traveled across the U.S. to tell stories about the effects of climate change. When Erica learned she would inherit potentially valuable mineral rights near the Bakken oil fields, she set out for North Dakota to investigate this bequest from a great-grandmother who'd vanished from the historical record. Windfall is a big story that addresses the myths and glorifications of the West, and how they shaped not only the women of her family, but the wider American story. Erica Bolstad joins me from Portland, Oregon. Erica, welcome to Real Fiction. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I knew immediately when I heard about this book, I wanted to get my hands on it. And much of Windfall is set in the Great Plains, specifically in the state of North Dakota. So I thought maybe we could just set the geography of where the oil boom research that took you there and and your ancestral family's homestead is located because sometimes these oil uh, formations and um, geology realities don't always obey international borders. So can you just set the state, set the geography for us? Absolutely. So the Bakken is in the northwestern corner of North Dakota, kind of on the western side of the state. And my family's homestead is in the very far northwestern corner of North Dakota. So it's it's actually maybe whew, like seven miles south, seven or eight miles south of the Canadian border. 
and probably about 60, 70 miles from the Montana border. So if that helps people place it on a physical map, that um, that's, that's where it is in the United States. Where it is sort of uh, thematically and um, energetically is a little bit different. It's, it's, uh, it's very much a part of the Great Plains, but it is also the West. It is part of the Western United States um, in, in so many ways. Yeah, and we're going to talk about the importance of the Homestead Act and how it shaped this part of the country. While a lot of people who have grown up in the Midwest, uh, as as I did, um, and are familiar with this concept, not everyone is certainly not outside the United States. You write in the book that the United States is the only country in the world where private individuals and not the government own the rights to what is beneath the earth. And we call this split estates where it's common. Um, So can you walk us through that just a bit and tell us, and also tell us about how you learned that your family held the mineral rights and how it fits into this sort of legal construct? Yeah, there's uh, there there are probably two kinds of um, Americans: <laughs> those who know what mineral rights are and those who don't. And if you know what they are, it's probably because you either inherited some, or maybe you saw it on a legal document for your deed or for land that you own or something like that. But essentially, in most parts of the of the United States, not everywhere, but in most parts of the United States, um, the mineral rights are severable. So they can be separated from the surface rights, which are kind of what you would think of when you own, say, a home and you own the land um, that the home is on. And in parts of the oil patch around the United States, so in oil patch states like North Dakota, Texas, Oklahoma, this is really common that different people might own the surface rights than the rights below the earth. And this can be a source of, well, it can be a source of wealth um, for those who inherit these mineral rights or own them outright or know that they have them. And it, it can be a huge headache or heartbreak for people who do not own the mineral rights beneath the earth but do own the surface rights. And, you know, if, if oil or gas is, is, uh, if, if an oil company comes in and drills for oil or gas in that place, the people who own that land or live there may have absolutely no connection to the drilling activity or, or the riches that come out of the earth. And let me just back up a second. I mentioned in the introduction that you are, you had such a strong familiarity with the West and resources and the impacts on climate uh, that it's pretty shocking that given your background and your journalism beat led you to this um, remarkable family history. You learned that you learned that you inherited mineral rights. In 2009, my mother inherited these mineral rights, and it was a complete surprise to her. Um, in fact, the email that um, that she sent to me and to my sister when she inherited them, she sent it just a few months before her own death. And it's in the back of my book as, an, as a note, um, because I think people probably wanted to see what that email looked like that I got from my mother. But she was completely surprised and absolutely delighted. I mean, this was like, for her, this was a bonanza. This was a, this was, this was 
the culmination of many hopes and dreams that her her father, my grandfather, had for that land. It wasn't until a few years later that I was in the position, maybe both financially and um, emotionally, to go in search of the story of why these mineral rights came my mother's way. And that is, you know, that's what the book is about, is going on that search to find out why we inherited these mineral rights, why this came to my family, and and who the woman at the very heart of it is, my great-grandmother Anna, who it was who kind of it all started from. Yes, and I am, I am trying to imagine what it would feel like to learn that you had inherited mineral rights given your background, given the family history, and also because the, the language of money is rather intimate in a family. So you just alluded to this, that your mother was delighted, and it was part of that kind of multi-generational hope that something that had belonged in the family might turn something up. And the book is titled Windfall for a Reason. Oh, yeah. The <laughs> money, I mean, money is uh, a fraught topic in, in just about any family, right? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's emotional, it's livelihood, it's, uh, you know, well-being, it means so many things. Um, and, and so in 2009, when my mother got this letter, this was, remember, the height of the Great Recession, when things were at their absolute worst. She was very sick. She had been sick for a while. Uh, she had heart disease and faced a lot of financial um, burdens because of it. She and my father did. So, you know, this was getting a check like this was for them, even if it was a small amount of money that only put a dent in, you know, the the medical bills that they owed at the time. It it just represented, I think, a little bit of hope. Like here, here it is, and and I, there is a belief in my family, probably fostered mostly by my mother, that windfalls money comes when it's most needed it arrives and i don't know if this is like sort of an almost spiritual belief or part of the american dream or just you know my mother's particular upbringing but it is it is definitely something that um that was passed down that money shows up when you most need it and and so uh, man i was so i was so conflicted i was really conflicted when not not initially when I heard about it. Initially when I heard about it, I was a little bit excited because I too understood the stresses of the recession. And as I write in the book, that was a time of life for me that was, you know, I had a lot of financial constraints then too. Um, my pay was cut as a journalist and, um, and, you know, just things seemed pretty bleak. Like there wasn't a lot of opportunity for advancement. And so when she found out about this and when I started looking into it, I had these conflicting feelings about it. On the one hand, it's exciting to get a check in the mail that you didn't anticipate. On the other hand, the source of that money is uh, full of really difficult decisions and really, really challenged what I knew as a journalist covering climate change. I mean, here here comes this check that comes directly from an oil company that is going to be potentially drilling into this land, causing short-term um, effects on the people who live there who may not actually own any mineral rights and may not be profiting from all of that activity. What does it mean to suddenly be a part of a real direct part of 
climate change, not sort of indirectly thinking about how much do I drive personally, whether I recycle, all of those things, but actually having a financial stake in something that we know has a direct consequence on our future world. You said, Erica, that you started receiving checks. The family started receiving checks from the oil companies. And I just wanted to be clear that this wasn't a check that said, okay, you've signed over the mineral rights and we're going to drill. It's it's more of a, it's kind of like a placeholder, isn't it? The oil company was taking uh, a stake or reserving a spot for potential drilling. I think that's a good way to describe it. It's kind of like a promise in some ways. Um, so what they're doing is they're leasing your mineral rights. They're paying you to reserve them. And they're saying within the next five or 10 years or however long the terms of the lease are, they're telling you that they might drill on that land in that time. And they're, and in the lease, it will say how much money you'll get um, per barrel or what percentage of, uh, of the profit you'll get um, if you if they do actually drill there. And you know one thing I should probably elaborate on is that my mother understood what these leases meant because her family had leased that land before. And they had leased it in the 1950s when there was a first oil boom in North Dakota. And, um, and so that lease money, those first lease checks paid for her to go to college. It was never drilled on in the 1950s. So they just, they just, you know, kept signing leases that said, maybe we'll drill here, maybe we'll drill here. And they got checks. I want to remind listeners that my guest today is Erica Bolstad. She is the author of Windfall, a highly anticipated release that um, we're talking about today. And so Erica, when you arrived in North Dakota, you didn't have a lot of information to work with. Your great grandmother left no diaries um, or letters. There just wasn't a lot of information, um, but you knew that she had acquired a parcel of land, which I found again, fascinating because she was, uh, she applied for this as a woman. There were rules about who could apply and get land. Walk us through what you did learn about your great-grandmother. Yeah. So the Homestead Act changed quite a bit over the years, um, you know, after it was first uh, enacted during the Civil War. And the parameters changed a little bit and how much land people could get. But in general, it was 160 acres. And the people who were eligible for homesteads were either single men, uh, single men of any race other than Native Americans, and they could also be recently arrived immigrants as well, single men, widowed women, and single women. And those were kind of the three main categories. As a married woman, you could not claim your own homestead. But my great-grandmother, it turns out, um, claimed a homestead right before she got married. And her husband, um, her husband-to-be, had already claimed a homestead in North Dakota and had developed it and then sold it uh, to someone else, sold it as a, just a farm to someone else. So once you had done that, you were also not eligible to claim another homestead. You only got one crack at this. This was you know, more common than you would think. And I don't, I don't think it would be really considered fraud. It's just, um, you know, she was as a single woman entitled to claim this land as, as a, a citizen, as a resident of the United States. And, and so she did. And then she almost immediately 
got married. And, and so it became, you know, joint property. Uh, she claimed the land in 1905. How did you do this research? So one of my very first, one of my very first stops on this journey <laughs> was actually in almost in my backyard in Washington, D.C., which is where I lived at the time. And that was the National Archives. Um, the National Archives has just about every single homestead file that was ever, every, every claim that was ever filed. And you can go there and look up your ancestors' claims. In my great-grandmother's file, it has a listing of everything that her husband did to uh, improve to, the property. Yeah, to improve the property, and so, so everything is in there. It, it describes, you know, what kind of structures they had on the land, how big they were, and then it also had a uh, a detail that, to me, was was I'd, I had a hint of it before, but it was shocking. I mean, it was it was it proved. Uh, did it prove it? I don't know. It um, it it told me something about this story that. Um, and about this this family story that I did not officially know. Uh, I did not yeah. officially know at the time, but I, you know, then then was able to follow up on. And that was uh, this is not a spoiler alert. It's on the book jacket that uh, my great grandmother was was she was committed to the mental hospital in North Dakota, and it says outright in one of the affidavits from a neighbor she was insane or she is insane is what it says actually so let's just sit there for a minute you here you are at the national archives and this is in the main building in washington dc this isn't at a satellite office this the homestead paperwork is in the main gilded national archive um, building so here you are and you get a set of files from your family you had already been in north dakota how surreal was that to be reading about this very remote farmland sitting in Washington, D.C., giving kind of a detail, uh, details of your family that you had never known before. I gasped out loud right there in the big main <laughs> reading room. I, I was shocked. I mean, I, I did have some hints that this was probably what happened to her. Um, and it just wasn't, you know, it was just whispered about in family history. But to see it there written down on the page, this confirmation, it was, it was probably the most uh, dramatic finding that I had in eight years of working on this project. <sighs> After learning this, what, where do you go from here? I mean, did you head back out to North Dakota? Did you discuss this with your family? Did you think, I don't know if I can write about this? Or did did it compel you to know with absolute certainty that this was a story that you needed to sort out for yourself and that it could become a, a book about a lot of things in American life? Exactly that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm a journalist. And so this was like, this was the, the moment that I was like, oh, I have... I have something here. I have something real here that that is actionable that I can do something with. So at the time, my mother had died a few years earlier. And, you know, I, I truly, one thing I just really regret is that she did not get to see the outcome of the search. I think that she would have absolutely loved it. She loved, um, she loved gossip. She loved stories. She loved, you know, drama, <laughs> dramatic stories. And, um, 
and she would just she would have loved this she would have known things that that were maybe just you know sort of family history story things that I could have run by her or it would have triggered memories that she hadn't thought about in a while but my first um, instinct was I need to go back to North Dakota and do more research and um, and that is when I went to the state asylum or the state mental hospital in North Dakota to um, to see if she had a file the intersections are incredible and the emotional intersections are incredible. When you were there, you've had some candid conversations, some some really, uh, I think, deep conversations with with individuals. What what have you learned about doing that? I mean, because as, as a journalistic technique, I think it's important to find ways to bring people to the table so that we can find some common ground. Yes, um, I think what I what I mostly did at the time. Uh, kind of deep in the heart of the research was was and when I was writing for Climate Wire and E and E News is I would talk to people about the very real effects of climate change that were happening on the ground. So we would talk about flooding, we would talk about temperature fluctuations, we would talk about uh, how the growing season had extended by you know two weeks, which is a lot uh, in a place at uh, that latitude. Um, and we would we would have those kind of conversations about the actual effects because p- people could talk about that they can talk about that now you know i'm a little more conflicted i i think that it's time to face reality in some of these places i i really think that it's time to consider the actions uh, of these individual actions of you know drilling on small little pieces of you know thousands of small little parcels these are individual decisions that have huge collective consequences and i think it can be really easy to overlook that when a check is arriving in your mailbox when your paycheck depends, your livelihood depends on, you know, having a oil business in your, in your city. But I also, I, I really think that that is, that needs to be something that people in oil patch states confront. I think that's part of the experiment, something I'm very interested in too. Yes. And I think what I, what I tried to do with Windfall is to use my family's story, so my own personal um, ambivalence, my own personal uh, just discomfort and curiosity about what was going on. I tried to use that family story and also the the story of you know how we got this to begin with this this great grandmother who was was uh, committed to the asylum. I don't want to say it's an allegory, but it is a way of showing people how we all have these connections to modern day climate change. Uh, yeah. They are that, yes. that many of them are deep. That they come from you know some in some cases decisions that our ancestors made that we are left to grapple with. And so I I think that many people in America, especially uh, perhaps in Canada as well have these connections and these these dilemmas that they that they perhaps have been maybe putting aside <laughs> maybe haven't been thinking about that directly but when they're when when I share this personal story this this uh the story of my family it explains a it explains bigger american theme and so we perhaps all of us myself included, can make decisions from that place where we understand 
our history and our place in it and what effect it might have on the future. And that is what a great work of nonfiction does when it's blending family history, uh, journalism, memoir. So if you feel comfortable asking, I think anybody who's listening to this wants to know what happened. Did you you have an oil boom on your estate? How did your family navigate this decision about what to do with the mineral rights after you had been researching and kind of working through this over a number of years. Yeah, I don't want to spoil the ending of the book. I wanted to give these mineral rights up. That is a decision I kind of came to. And that was tested when um, my father was diagnosed with dementia. And I had to decide, you know, how to handle his finances and how to handle his and pay for his care. And at one point at the height of sort of thinking about that, um, a big check showed up again, another lease check. And it was a surprise because I didn't think that they, I didn't Mm. think that they were going to pursue drilling on this land yet. Here was another chunk of money. And I had to, I, me this time, not my mother or my father, me as my father's, uh, conservator, I had to cash the check. And that was the point where I really just, you know, um, I think that's the point where I understood wholeheartedly how difficult these decisions can be for people. During the editing process, things always get taken out and reshaped. Is there anything that you discovered that didn't make it into the book that you wish had or that you're you're reflecting on since its publication? Yes, I'm, I'm definitely thinking about um, uh, two things. One um, is, is just the ideas around mineral rights uh, in America, in the United States, hmm. I'm really, I'd really like to examine in the future kind of how we decided that this is a, the, you know, it's it's many many centuries of of, of land use and um, and you know common law, etc. But I I think it's time to re-examine it. I am thinking about that now. That's sort of you know I had to end the book somewhere, but I, that is kind of my next step. And then um, I actually uh, a few months ago. My one of my aunts sent me some papers that she found after um, her husband died, and this was after the book was finished, completely done. And I, I was so nervous to open it. I was like, "What if there is some great, wow. great discovery in here?" Um, and I, I actually just left it in my closet for a while. I just put it in the closet because I was like, "I can't do anything about it now. The book is finished." And honestly, a few days ago, I did open it, and there were all these papers from. Um, my great grandfather. None of them were life changing, or they wouldn't have shifted or changed the trajectory of the book at all. But they were all these little details that I maybe would have loved to have had. Um, he kept a lot of receipts from his life, like actual receipts and paperwork from his army days. And one of the details that I would have loved to have had in the book is that he kept 30 years of tax receipts from this land that he owned, that he inherited from his mother. But it is this detail that only reinforces what I what I thought and what I believed and, and what I saw with evidence um, about the importance of that place to him, but also of how he saw that land as being a, um, you know, a place that he wanted to hold on to because he felt as though it would someday pay off for his family. 
And what it says to me is that when you're dealing with mineral rights and land, the next surprise may still be around the corner, even when you think you know the full story. Erica, thank you for spending time with me and Real Fiction today. It's been such a, a learning experience for me to go through this book and speak with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It has been wonderful to start to talk to readers who are resonating with this book and with the subject matter. So thank you. You've been listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Real Fiction broadcasts on KXCV. It is also available on the Bearcat public media app. Real Fiction is a production of Real Fiction Media Group. All Real Fiction episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts and on realfictionradio.com. You can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you for listening.